0: We're in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. I want to begin this morning just by reading those verses for you. This is what Paul had to say to the Romans. He said, "'Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge.' As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is God's word. Well, I have to start this morning. Um, I have a bit of a confession to make. In the year 2003, I watched and followed quite closely the original season of Australian Idol. Uh, Thank you for giving me this opportunity to come clean. I even went to one of the concerts, uh, I'm afraid to say. And if you remember the, uh, the original season, it was kind of the launching pad for two young Australian ta- talents. We had Guy Sebastian and Shannon Knoll, or Nolzy, as he was known uh, by many uh, at that time. And it was in the following year, in 2004, that Shannon Knoll gave us his rendition of a song called What About Me? And in the chorus of the song, this is a song of a true underdog. It's a real power ballad. He cries out, what about me? It isn't fair. I've had enough and I want my share. Can't you see? I want to live, but you just take more than you give and no, I will not sing it. (laughs) And you need to know that as we enter chapter 10 of Paul's epistle to the Romans, we're actually diving into a section of the letter where a similar power ballad is being sung. Only now the lyrics aren't, what about me? The lyrics are, what about Israel? What about God's people? Israel. You see everything that given everything that Paul has argued up until this point in Romans there's a there's actually a little bit of a question mark over the faithfulness of God. How is it that all of these gentiles, all of these non-Jewish folks are coming to faith and inheriting the blessings of the new covenant when it seems that for the most part the Jews aren't experiencing that same blessing. And so for 3 chapters, chapters 9, 10 and 11, Paul is Paul is kind of putting together this argument that helps us understand what's going on in redemptive history with respect to the people of Israel. And in chapter 9, he, he spends most of his time looking at the situation from the lens of God's sovereignty, where we uh, most clearly, perhaps in the New Testament, and even most strikingly, we see that doctrine of election, that not, who, not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. But then in chapter 10, he looks at the exact same situation. He says, no, let's now look at the situation through the lens of human responsibility. And Paul knows that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are just two sides of the same coin. So he's happy to look at both. And what you have to realize is that as Paul is synthesizing this pretty complicated theological argument, he's he's not standing aloof to the content, as if to him this was just another theological dissertation. No, Paul is pouring out his heart here. Romans 9, 10, and 11, he is pouring out his heart for his lost kinsman. If you cut Paul, he would bleed, a love for Israel. That's what we see in these chapters. In fact, look at how he begins in uh, Romans chapter nine. Uh, this is verses one through three. It's on screen. He says, "I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart." For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And these same feelings are echoed again there in chapter 10 when he says my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul's heartbroken. I'm sure we all resonate with that at some level as we've watched those whom we love dearly continue to reject the offer of salvation through Christ. But what makes this heartbreak particularly difficult for Paul is that he's actually all too familiar with the snare that the Jews have got themselves caught in. And it's the snare of self-righteousness. Rather than acknowledging the righteousness of God found in the gospel, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own. And you need to remember that Paul's kinsmen, the the Jews, they're not godless infidels who have no regard for righteousness at all. In fact, righteousness to them was very important. They were very zealous when it came to being in right standing before God. But the truth is they were going about it the wrong way. They may have been sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They pursued the law as if their righteousness were based on works. And this was the same snare that Paul was in prior to his own conversion. He describes his own zeal in Galatians chapter 2 when he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He also tells us in Philippians 3 that he considered himself blameless with respect to the law. This was the snare that Paul was all too familiar with, that snare of self-righteousness. But we need to know that this snare is also the same snare of every other world religion except Christianity. Herman Barvink he sums it up this way. He says, "...insofar as every human more or less consciously strives for a lasting happiness and an unchanging good, one can say with Augustine that every human also seeks God, who alone is the highest good and our eternal salvation." One must immediately add, however, that in the darkness of our understanding and the evil thoughts of our heart, we seek Him not in the right way and not where He may be found. Pagan religions have no concept of the holiness of God. They lack the the correct insight into sin and know of no grace. Inasmuch as they do not know the person of Christ, they all hold the way of works to be the way of salvation." whether the works they must perform are more ceremonial or more ethical in kind, whether they are more positive or more negative, humans are always their own saviour. All religions, other than the Christian religions, are auto-soteric. That is to say, they are self-saving religions. And if you're a recovering Pharisee like me, I'm sure you resonate with that at some level. I mean, but we need to know that such self-righteous, such self-saving thinking is not only bizarre in the new covenant, it's actually completely bizarre with respect to the old covenant. Let me tell you, Moses would have been rolling in his grave if he knew that subsequent generations of Jews thought that their righteousness before God was based on their works. You see, it's actually a very common error for us to think that in the Old Testament, people were saved based on their behavior. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and says, no, you're saved by your belief. It's commonly held, but it's actually totally wrong salvation has always been the gracious gift of God received in faith. And for anyone who would doubt that, Paul gives us the kind of premier example in the life of Abraham, the patriarch of Judaism. Now, look at what he says in uh, Romans chapter 4. This is Romans 4 verses 3 through 5. Speaking of Abraham, he says, "...for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness." Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as, as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Abraham, the father of Judaism, wasn't justified by works. He believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, once you establish that, that that's what's going on in the old covenant, you have to ask the question, it really begs the question, If that's the case, how did the Jews get it so wrong? How is it that they thought that their works would justify them before Almighty God? Well, Paul speaks to that somewhat in verse 5 in a kind of abstract way. It's a little tricky to understand what Paul's doing here. But look at what he says in verse 5. He says, For Moses, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, and what Paul is doing here is actually quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which in its original context, Moses is just saying that when it comes to God's law, if you obey it, it's going to result in flourishing. That for the Israelites who'd been graciously rescued out of Egypt, that if they obeyed God's law, it would result in flourishing and prolonged enjoyment in the uh, in land of Canaan that, Jesus, uh, that God was bringing them to. So Moses wasn't saying that obedience to the commandments will bring eternal life, but more so a happy life, one of thriving and flourishing in the land of Canaan. And we, we resonate with that, don't we? We witness that when there's, when there's no theft or murder or, or adultery or the sojourner is looked after and there's justice in the land. We, we see that life flourishes, right? If we do them, we live by them. And yet at the same time as Paul quotes this verse in Leviticus 18.5, he seems to recognize that the Mosaic law does in some sense hold you out this vague, unreachable offer that's scribbled into the footnotes of the law, if you will, that if someone were to obey this law perfectly, were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength all the time perfectly, that it would result and right standing before God and eternal life. And Paul is kind of picking up on this this vague offer that's scribbled into the the margins and says, um, when it comes to the righteousness that is based on the law, the blessings that are attached to it hinge upon what you do. That for all the flourishing it offers to those who obey, the essence of the Mosaic law is ultimately, blessing is contingent upon obedience. And Paul is saying that the Jews of his day had smudged the true purposes of the law, they'd forgotten that Abraham was justified by faith, they'd forgotten their own gracious rescue out of Egypt, and the very law that was supposed to bring their sin into greater light and lead them to the mercies of Christ, well, they actually misconceived it. They majored in the minors, they took what was scribbled in the margins and put it in bold print on the title page, (laughs) and they pursued what Douglas Moo calls a phantom righteousness an unattainable righteousness based on works. They miss the forest because of the trees. And this is why in our context, on this side of the cross, it is our our job, the job of every Christian, to defend, clearly articulate and emphasize the gospel in everything that we do. Because it only takes one generation for the church to wither and lose sight of grace. Don Carson said it this way. He says, The first generation has the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel and the third generation loses the gospel entirely. That's why we must emphasize the gospel in everything we do. So the Jews had fallen from grace. Paul is heartbroken about it because he knows the tragedy of such self-righteous thinking. He, he's been in that snare before. And he says in Romans seven 7.10 that the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Paul knows just how futile their thinking is. But he goes on to say that contrary to this righteousness that's based on the law is the righteousness based on faith. And Paul spends the next three, verse doing, uh, three verses doing some of the most bizarre Old Testament exegesis you'll ever see. Uh, it's as if he takes the book of Deuteronomy and says, righto kids, it's time for paper mache. Like the way he handles Deuteronomy here is just plain weird. Uh, it's left biblical scholars with many a headaches and also the occasional associate pastor. Gets in on that headache as well. But rest assured, once we get through the the paper mache of what he's doing here in Deuteronomy, we're going to see that there's actually two very helpful points about the gospel uh, that Paul is trying to make. And he begins there in verse 6 with those words, Do not say in your heart. Now, those six words is a very familiar snippet from Deuteronomy chapter 9. And it's a point where Moses is reminding the Israelites that at the end of the day, the reason why they're inheriting the land is not because of their own righteousness, but because of the grace of God. At the end of of the day, this is the crowd that worshipped the golden calf, not exactly earning their way into the land of Canaan. And so Paul picks up these words as just another reminder of the bankruptcy of works-based righteousness. But then again, in this paper mache exegesis, no sooner has he quoted Deuteronomy 9, he kind of gets into the DeLorean, goes all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 30 to make his next point. And it might help us to read it in context. This is uh, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. He says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And in context, Moses is saying to the Israelites that God's law at the end of the day is simple. It's accessible to you and you don't have to go to astronomical lengths to find it. It's been made plain to you and there's really no excuse for pleading ignorance. God's law has been made plain. And so as Paul is alluding to this uh, text in Deuteronomy 30, he's in effect saying the exact same thing about the message of the gospel, that the gospel is simple. The gospel is accessible to you and you don't have to break the cosmos to find it. The mercies of Christ are available to you. There's no need to ascend into heaven and bring Christ down because he's already done that in the incarnation. There's no need to descend into the abyss because Christ is already risen from the dead. He rose again on the third day. There is no work left for us to be done other than to believe, to go all in on the finished work of Jesus. And everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the simple, clear and accessible good news of the gospel. Now, some points of clarity might be needed here. This is not to adopt some kind of cheap, easy believism, the kind of thing where people say, oh, you know, back at youth camp 25 years ago, that one time I, I said the sinner's prayer. I, I confessed Jesus as Lord, so I'm good now. I'm all set. That's not what we're talking about here. Let me tell you, I've, maybe you've seen the same thing. I've seen some manipulative altar calls with that kind of thinking where we can kind of twist the arm and get a confession as r c sproul said no it's the profession of faith that saves pardon me it's the possession of faith that saves not the profession of it but furthermore we're also not talking about a mere tip the hat intellectual assent to the content of the gospel because at the end of the day lucifer can do that no 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 it's it's much more than that that paul's talking about here charles spurgeon described it this way he said, The faith that saves is not believing certain truths, nor even believing that Jesus is Saviour, but it is resting on Him, depending on Him, lying with all your weight on Christ as the foundation of your hope. Believe that He can save you, believe that He will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with Him in unquestioning confidence. Depend upon Him without fear as, as to your present and eternal salvation. This is the faith which saves the soul. Spurgeon is saying that when it comes to true faith in Christ, we have to put all of our eggs into the one basket. We have to go all in. You can't have 90% of your eggs in the faith basket and the other 10% in your self-righteous works-based basket. It's all or nothing. Spurgeon went on to say that both feet have to be planted on the rock of ages. That's the kind of faith we're talking about here i'm um, currently reading a book called church history in plain language by bruce shelley i highly recommend it i'm about halfway through and i'm having a ball um and just recently i read the account of a man named martin luther who was a guy who schizophrenically tried to establish his own righteousness by the most intense and insane ascetic lifestyle i mean he would fast for prolonged periods he would deliberately sleep in winter without a blanket um and even at times he threw himself downstairs trying to somehow appease God with his works. And in retrospect, he says, I kept the rule so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. But in time he came to see that the, <clears throat> there are some very majestic words in Romans chapter 1, that in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And it clicked. He was set free. All of his eggs were suddenly placed into the one basket. And he went on to describe his conversion experience in a poem. Uh, thankful to uh, Bruce Shelley who records this. He says, In devil's dungeon chained I lay. The pangs of death swept over me. My sin devoured me night and day, in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life, and sin had made me crazy. Thus spoke the Son, hold thou to me. From now on thou wilt make it. I gave my very life for thee, and for thee I will stake it. For I am thine, and thou art mine, and where I am, our lives entwine. The old fiend cannot shake it. Luther was set free. And he was set free because he heard the message of the gospel. And in light of all that we've considered throughout this series in eternity, especially what we considered last week, we need to realize the priority and urgency of heralding the message of the gospel. (laughs) Paul said in Romans 1 that he was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But the problem is, as much as we say we may believe that, in in practice, if you if you threw a blanket over the Western Church, where we're probably a little bit more ashamed of the gospel than we realise, it happens in the pulpit. Many sermons today are offering good advice instead of heralding the good news. With pragmatic concerns for church growth, many churches preach a kind of seeker-sensitive, domesticated gospel that tickles people's self-absorption, but never really calls them to repentance. When really what should be happening, as Michael Horton put it, we should come to church expecting nothing less than God's gracious assault on the citadels of our autonomy. But being ashamed of the gospel also happens at a personal level, doesn't it? And I think we do this probably a little bit more unconsciously. Uh, Sometimes we assume we're evangelizing our friends at work because we... We tell them that we go to church it's a good thing to do or well sometimes we think we're evangelizing because at the christmas party last year we were the only sober one now both of which of those things are perfectly valid at the end of the day our manner and our message need to be in alignment but amidst all that do we ever stop and ask ourselves who have i told about the life death and resurrection of jesus but do we ever open our mouths and share the content of the gospel? Um, There's a very popular Christian slogan. I used to say it myself. That's falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi. And it says, "Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words." Um, let's let's think about that for a moment. I mean, in in light of Romans 10, it's a little bit nonsensical. I mean, we we have to use words. At the end of the day, the gospel is a message. Um, When I interviewed for my job here at the project, uh, nearly a year to the day, actually, I I sat in front of a panel of six members of the project. And the first question that I was asked and given 60 seconds to reply, I might add, um, was this, Jaden, what's the gospel? That was my first interview question. Now, let me tell you, for that 60 seconds, I didn't sit there just smiling, showing the interviewers my joy in the Lord and that somehow they would learn the content of the gospel by sheer virtue of my smile. I've actually got resting prisoner face, so I don't think that would have happened anyway. (laughs) Nor did I start handing out loaves of bread to each of the interviewers as to um, demonstrate the gospel in that way. No, what I did was I articulated a message about what God has done in sending Christ Jesus to atone for my sin. You see we have to be so careful that we don't confuse the entailments of the gospel with the message of the gospel. Now, the entailments are important. We I think we covered that last week that you know serving the poor and being a voice for the voiceless, that's so important. Those are noble Christian endeavors. And if we're not doing them, it probably reflects we don't understand the gospel. But at the end of the day, you cannot do the gospel you have to proclaim it. We have to open our mouths and speak. Look at the uh, progression of thought in Paul's argument. We're in uh, Romans 10 still, verses 14 to 15. Look at the progression. He says, How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone Preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, when Paul writes, you have to remember, he's actually still lamenting the unbelief of his fellow Jews. In his own context, there's a sense in which he's actually thinking about this progression in reverse. It's as if Paul's thinking to himself, "Well, well, God has sent preachers. I'm one of them. I'm an apostle, and I've been moving around the Mediterranean for years with my fellow apostles, and we've been preaching. But if we've been preaching, then that means that the Jews have, in fact, heard the gospel. But then if they've heard it, and they haven't called on Jesus, then that means, ah, they haven't believed the gospel. You see, Paul is lamenting in verses 14 and 15. We hear it again later in verse 18. He says, "'But I ask,' Have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So that's Paul's context, but as Paul is lamenting for our own context, he he gives us a sequence of events that must occur between someone being sent and someone being saved. And right in the middle, the rate limiting step is preaching. And sometimes we struggle with that because it's true, like the Jews, people who we share the gospel with stumble over it. It is, after all, a message of folly to those who are perishing. It is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And people will trip over it in some sense by sheer virtue of its simplicity. But if we're going to be effective witnesses, we can't allow ourselves to be too disenchanted by that. The gospel is offensive. It calls mankind to abandon all hope in self-righteousness. It calls you to put all of your eggs into the one basket of the one who allowed himself to die on a Roman cross. People won't like that. In one sermon, uh, Robert Murray McShane described it this way. This is mid-sermon. He says, "Oh, brethren, if the gospel were by works, you could understand it. If you could get to heaven by your works, you would say, that is a good gospel. That is good preaching. But righteousness by another, that is foolishness. Everyone wants to save themselves. That's what we like to think. Project Church, even though God is sovereign in salvation, at the level of human responsibility, if those who are lost have any hope of coming to faith in Christ, we must preach. As one commentator put it, we can... We can get so caught up in the vertical theology of Romans chapter 9 that we become horizontally irresponsible here in chapter 10. Preaching is the primary means through which God calls people to himself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let me ask you this morning, um, where and how is Jesus asking you to preach the gospel? You know, it was interesting for me preparing this sermon this week. I, I wrestled with it. I, I was reminded that this actually isn't the first time that I've preached Romans chapter 10. Uh, back in 2016, I was actually invited to speak at an Egyptian Coptic Orthodox Bible study at Griffith Uni. And uh, if I'm honest, though there were people there who probably knew Jesus, um, the church that this Bible study emerged from as, as an institution had categorically... Uh, denied the gospel, they were preaching another gospel, and many of the young people who attended this study were caught up in religiosity and traditionalism and talking with many of them and befriending them uh, over those years i I noticed that they hadn 't gone all in and put all the eggs in <clears throat> into the Gospel of jesus christ and I got to preach to them, and I got to hang out with them at mcdonald 's afterwards and do some friendly theological wrestling, and I visited their youth service, and oh boy, I felt alive. <laughs> it was one of those "how beautiful are the feet" kind of moments. I I was having a ball. <laughs> now let me tell you, it, I have the honour and privilege of serving as a pastor here at the project. Um, one year in, I'm having a ball. I'm so thankful for the opportunity Jesus has given me here. But um, I mean, I get to preach the gospel for a living. It's truly an honour. <laughs> But something that I know is going to have to change up in my own rhythms is that in the last year, I haven't spent that much time with non-Christians. And I miss it. Uh, For other reasons too, but uh, I miss being able to share my faith in just the normal, everyday rhythms of life. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And in my second year here, I want to do some more fishing. Uh, I think I even decided last night, if I go on a missions trip, my automatic email reply is going to be gone fishing. So yeah, look out for that, if I ever go on missions trips. Why don't the band come and join me as I close? Um, I want to ask you this morning, what is it for you? Maybe Jesus is simply calling you to grow in personal evangelism in the workplace. You don't necessarily need a pulpit to preach the gospel. Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 8. I just want to show you that. Uh, it's on screen, Acts 8, 4 through 5. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Did you see that? That Philip is proclaiming the gospel in the sense of a sermon, but the rest of the scattered Christians are sharing the gospel. They're, they're gossiping it over the back fence. <laughs> and maybe that's what Jesus is calling you to today. Now, you, you can't do it that in, in your own strength. If, if you're like me, I'm sure you've failed at it a number of, number of times before. If, if we're honest, there can be a lot of fear attached to that. But do you know what you can do with that fear? Tell Jesus about it. Tell Him it's really hard. Tell Him that you actually get intimidated sharing your faith. Don't try and share the gospel in your own strength, but pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would give you boldness. And let me tell you, He'll give it to you. He will. And I look forward to the testimonies. (laughs) And then for some of us, maybe Jesus is calling you to some form of vocational ministry, maybe to church planting or to overseas missions where you can preach the gospel to the nations. That's why we're a part of Acts 29 here at the project, because we believe the most effective way uh, to reach the lost is to plant a church where lost people are in the hope that they hear the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Before we close today, I um I don't know who's listening this morning, but perhaps there's some people listening and you are so tired of your meticulous pursuit of righteousness. You're you're exhausted trying to appease God by your own good works and Amidst all of your flustering, maybe you're worried that on that last day you will be put to shame. Listen, if you're done with legalistic religiosity, call on Jesus today. You will not be put to shame. He is not asking you to climb your way to Him. He has already made His way down to you through the cross. Believe on Him today.